0: Welcome to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation podcast. I'm Vicky Tung, the Programme Manager for Futures and Innovation here at the centre. Our annual innovation report brings into focus innovations that can benefit international civil society organisations, and also shows in turn how these organisations are benefiting society in challenging or complex contemporary contexts. This podcast episode forms part of our 2020 edition on civil society innovation and urban inclusion, highlighting how a range of organisations are working in cities around the world to deliver inclusive solutions for whole communities or particularly marginalised or vulnerable groups of residents. In each of these podcast case stories, we really want to lift the lid on these innovations and hear directly from the people at the heart of designing and delivering them. Today I'm delighted to be talking to three colleagues from different organisations who are collaborating on the Urban Safety Project in Yangon, Myanmar. Firstly, David Nay, who's specialist in urban safety at the Asia Foundation, and then Shoko Sukuma, program manager at Women for the World, and Lumin Nguyen, project coordinator at TB. Thank you all so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank
0: you. Hey, everyone. So first question, I'd like to know about your organizations and what you do in terms of your work in urban areas. So starting with you, David, could you introduce the Asia Foundation, please?
1: Sure. So the Asia Foundation is a nonprofit international development organization. We work to improve the lives and expand opportunities and help societies flourish across a range of different dynamic and developing parts of Asia. So we have 18 country offices partnering with different innovation leaders and communities with a goal of trying to build effective institutions and really advance path-breaking reforms. Our programs address a range of critical issues affecting Asia in the 21st century, and this includes governance, law, economic development, women's empowerment, environment, and regional cooperation more broadly. We're an office that has a large sub-national governance portfolio, So in this case, urban planning plays a real specific role in many of the projects that we work on across the region. Our work really aims to engage with city and municipal authorities because they're the closest with the citizens, and they're the ones that are really responsible for planning and preparing basic service delivery, which is going to impact the community more broadly.
0: Thanks. And Women for the World and Phoebe are two of your innovation partners for this project. So, Shoko, could you talk a bit about Women for the World, please?
2: Sure. The women for the World is a local NGO. We have been supporting community development since 2004. After Cyclone Nargis, which hit the country, we started community mobilization through women saving groups. Most of them were cyclone hit affected migrants. One day, when we asked these women what they want to do after saving, They said they want to own their house. Then we started supporting their community-led housing. Since then, we continuously work on urban issues, from land finance to infrastructure, etc., particularly showing the real possible solution by the people to the society. So far, around 2,000 families are able to own their secure housing in Yangon across six townships, seven townships. Our overarching vision is to build a balanced society where every human being can live with dignity.
0: Thank you. And Lumen and your group of Tech Whiz Kids, what do you do at (laughs) PB?
3: We're a collective in the space of data and design. In a broad sense, we design data-driven technologies that empower people to intuitively understand complexity. And we help organizations become data-driven in ways that try to make them more human, not less. In specific terms, we uh, prototype, design, and develop a range of data visualizations. We do full-stack web development, focusing on data-driven web applications. We also develop data literacy curriculums and trainings. We've worked on projects, on projects surrounding uh, illicit financial flows data, biodiversity data, data for local governance. We also have our team members spread across the world. I think we're spread across Chicago, Manila, Georgia, Yangon, and Singapore.
0: So you all bring very different experiences and skills to the urban safety project that you're working on together. What's the big idea behind this and what are your different roles, starting with David?
1: So the urban safety project more broadly takes the understanding that it is up to many different local authorities and communities coming together to be able to provide a safer urban environment for everybody within that community. And we have an understanding that the local authority, so at the township level, what would be referred to as the municipal administration in other contexts, uh, is the best suited to be able to immediately and directly impact those communities which they are responsible to provide services for. These institutions, uh, when we'll get into this later, have a very complex and actually siloed history of working as uh, individual units. And the Urban Safety Project is an attempt to find a way to bring different administrative units together to be able to collaboratively solve problems and then also loop in the community themselves in an institution that has been primarily top down and bring the community into collaboratively understanding and addressing the urban challenges that we face on a daily basis. The project itself has been in operation since 2016, and we work in four townships that have four urban centers. Up until this point, we've been working in three, and we've just actually started to expand into a new township, which is in line with not only local interests, but is in line with a a wider union reform policy as a pilot. So we're trying to work in these more complex collaborative processes into an existing project that has government buy-in at all levels, between the the lowest level of administration at the ward to the most senior level of administration at the union. So the the Asia Foundation's role in, in this project is to kind of facilitate and serve as a a link between local level government institutions, and then our collaborating partners. So in this case, DB and Women for the World, along with a cohort of other partners that have been well established within the communities that we work together to help understand challenges and protect.
0: And Shoko, what's Women for the World's main role?
2: I think Women for the World's main role in this project is bringing the community's voice or on-ground voice from the smallest administrative boundary, which is world level, through community-level safety audit. And Lumen BB, all the data stuff.
3: BB's role is in designing and developing the Township GIS tool, which is a uh, web-based mapping tool where Township officials can see, overlay, and share data, and all of this is to support the work that the Urban Safety Project is doing in our Township project areas.
0: So these project areas are townships in both Yangon region and in two other states. David, could you say more about these different areas, please?
1: The Urban Safety Project currently is working in four townships, so the lowest level of administration for and effectively the, the closest thing we would have to a municipal authority. More practically, the, the four project areas we work in all have a very unique set of challenges. Myanmar is a, is a very complex and diverse country with multi-ethnic, multi-lingual, multi-religious. And when we're talking about the urban space, it's not really a monolith. It's not that one city is this, presenting the same challenges as others. So we have uh, one township called Hindaya that we focus on in Yangon with a population of a million people unofficially and officially a population of around 400,000. So you have all of the complex challenges associated with, with land tenure, with formality, with migrant labor that are coming into the largest city in the country. Then you also have townships like Taunji and Pa'an, which are on, they're in the officially the the ethnic minority states. So you have the challenges of a, a much more complex and diverse group of community members that are still being effectively controlled by a central authority that represents more or less the ethnic majority within the country. All of these challenges come together, but are are quite unique, where you have small populations that are very diverse. You have large populations that are more homogenous, but have different diversities related to their own socioeconomic access and privilege. And when we're talking about urban safety, it's incredibly helpful to have organizations like Women for the World come in and then lead these safety audits, because the community has to have the unique understanding of their own challenges because they are so different, whether that's because of geography, whether that's because of access, whether that's because of the socioeconomic differences. By being able to understand what the unique challenges are in each space, it prevents you from coming in as a, with a prescriptive one-size-fits-all urban safety strategy for the entire country.
0: And what are the main factors behind the voices of citizens being excluded from current urban safety and development policies?
1: Urbanization in Myanmar, it's slow moving, but has recently become more of a challenge. Regionally, Myanmar actually hasn't urbanized at the same speed that you would see in in other neighboring countries, with only about 30% of the population currently in an urban environment. Uh, This is expected to change. Uh, And because of recent reforms expected to grow at a rate that is still relatively normal regionally, but without the appropriate preparations that local authorities would, would need to consider, it is going to remain a challenge for authorities at the state and union level. This is primarily a concern in the fastest growing city of Yangon of a population of around 5 million people, 33% of the population still don't have access to basic infrastructure like piped water. It's because of a combination of, of many different administrative challenges that we've gotten to this point. But there is a tendency to blame the population for this growth and try to physically separate people, growing the city, expanding the boundaries, and forcibly relocating the population out of the more densely packed parts of the city rather than understanding that a lot of this growth is natural, is inevitable, and can be planned for effectively if you are not necessarily responding to the challenge, but proactively planning for the arrival. The challenges with bringing the community into this process have been linked back to a series of different authoritative regimes that have ruled the country for over half a century. And even before that, when you look at the uh, colonial period, the pre-colonial period, there has been very little history of incorporating the community into wider planning practices. We have a history of a military government that has traditionally ruled from the top down the function of local authorities, whether it was the local administration or the police or other senior level administrative bodies have always been in a position to monitor and control and implement change by representing the the most senior levels of state power, rather than bringing the community into this process, which meant that post-2010, when we started seeing the kind of the start of this democratic reform process, there there wasn't a well-developed process to bring communities' voice into this conversation. And as the, the urban safety project has started to work with these different authoritative bodies, we've had to help reframe or allow the opportunity to reframe local administration as a space for service providers to provide to the community rather than service providers to control the community and, and manage for a lack of quote-unquote discipline.
2: Thanks. Shoko, could you
0: expand a bit on the community perspectives of the same question, uh, including the experiences of women as well, please?
2: There are some aspects. Uh, first, the uh, point is uh, in relation to what David had said. Actually, in many words, which is like a more local level than township level, uh, what leaders are aware of their safety issues, committees' concerns. But since the dominant policies and actions are taken for the state rather than the people, and the highly descent, a highly centralized and siloed system, so these voices are not reached beyond the world level. In fact, actually there are some uh, uh, words or areas, uh, which are taking initiatives like street light improvement, road drainage uh, screening, etc. But this remains only in a small level and without the government's funding or support. The project areas we worked. Uh, there are many informal, unregistered residents. The local government receives no budget for them, and therefore no incentive to provide services or, or consultation. So, for example, in case of Line Terror, uh, with about 1 million residents, half are uh, formally documented, while the half, other half are informal. So this threatens services they share, such as waste collection, water, sanitation, and transport. That is uh, creating tension between these two people. I think this is uh, commonly observed in other issues from gender perspective. But on a daily basis, many women are often blamed when they share the concern, unsafety issue or something. Like past them, their husband might say, oh, this is your full responsibility. You are just complaining, just solve it by yourself. Even these kind of things can lead to the verbal abuse, particularly unsafety issues, specifically for the women, such as harassment or sexual violence, which are difficult to share. They even feel that an embarrassing thing. Because uh, uh, there are not a few people who blame about it as their responsibility to get such sexual harassment. So, under that kind of conditions, um, rather than wondering if, there would be, um, they, if they would understand or help them, they tend to be quiet. Just uh, like start feeling, okay, maybe I can just change my mind. I'm okay, it is not a problem. Then they continue to live with that perception of unsafety, and sometimes that kind of unsafety uh, perception becomes normal daily things. When we did uh, the focus group discussion in the uh, with the map, a bit more sensitive issues uh, raised from a women group were uh, like sexual harassment, especially in the crowded area like uh, uh, hostels or their families' uh, accommodation because there are like many unknown people. And they are also feeling insecure about that. Some people said that the particular roads they want to avoid because of the verbal abuse or alcoholic people around there. Those are like things raised by women. More generally, uh, overall, the safety issues are quite diverse, uh, starting from the road safety, which related to many issues like crime or road conditions, flooding, drainage conditions plus more environmental issues like waste, street dogs, was uh, quite diverse. And then also depending on the environmental condition, like, uh, was different from Tanji to Ba'an.
0: So you're working to bring community data into an existing government data system, but this already has its own complex challenges.
1: One of the areas that we, we think about when we're talking about addressing urban safety is understanding the, the drivers of these challenges and understanding what currently is in place to be able to proactively and preemptively plan for the the urban challenges that we'll see a month down the road a quarter or many years down the road we don't have a well integrated system of data collection and data management which is really useful at being able to provide this kind of analysis. The data itself, at the township level, is often fed into a, a wider database, which is then stored at the union, but is not necessarily actually used for strategic planning. It's used because of a colonial system of counting. So the, Data itself is is robust, but it's not necessarily useful in actually providing for the community or making decisions that are strategic and, and long-term. We have the township authority who we work with, who understands the community better than anyone else because they're the closest to the community. And I include ward administration within the the, the umbrella of township in this case but we don't really have a state or union procedure which has empowered local townships to be able to make their own decisions. So the data that's collected is part of a process where the townships are a cog in a wheel of a system where everything gets consolidated and fed into a a wider uh, black hole that doesn't really inform the township and has never really provided a space, most importantly, for townships to understand why they're collecting it. We also have issues that the data is siloed. So the the process is that the data would be collected at the the local level and then moved up a system, but that system is, is quite top down from the union with union level ministries that are requesting this information. It goes up through a bureaucratic chain, but it doesn't move in between the different systems of government. The other challenges uh, are related to sharing where departments might share data, but it's a very time consuming arduous process that relies on institutionalized bureaucratic measures and approvals where uh, you don't necessarily want to be the one that hands over that data. So you have a 15 step process at times that requires multiple signatures from multiple parties to get data that at that point is either inaccurate or potentially outdated. And then this is the the final problem where the data itself is, is quite static. And understandably, data at this point is primarily been collected on paper. So as you start shifting over to more digital systems, the digital part of this process has been not to, solve problems of integration and breaking those silos, but has effectively been to move from paper to a computer without recognizing all of the other ways that digital technology might alleviate some of the the more institutionalized challenges that you face. So because of all of these challenges, you have these stacks of unstructured and incompatible reports, which are effectively passed around, but you don't have the ability to then take this information and then analyze it effectively. You can have records, but without being able to, to see how they all relate to each other, it's very hard to, to make these kind of very necessary, but challenging proactive decisions. So the Urban Safety Project, recognizing these challenges, has tried to reframe the value of of the data itself and demonstrate how one institution might have part of the picture, which is complemented by another institution's part of the picture. And then it all comes together like a puzzle. And then couple that with information that you wouldn't necessarily have because you're not in practice of collecting it. But the community understands it, the Urban Safety Project is positioned to try to bring all of these different, unique perspectives together. When you're collecting all of this information and you're able to demonstrate the value, then the, the local civil servants who have a history of collecting it can start actually seeing what's useful and what's not. By collecting this information and, and bringing it together, Uh, you provide a space for a, a new way of seeing things that you normally wouldn't have had. The project itself has really been focusing on collecting and adding the geospatial element to this entire process. So mapping has been one of the main areas that we've been able to use as an entry point for more dynamic conversations with local authorities, because we have the technical expertise as a project to be able to show on a map, in space within the areas that they're responsible for, how their data all comes together. So moving from these stacks of paper, not only to digital systems, but digital systems that actually show you patterns in a plane, in a, in a physical space, really demonstrates what information is useful and what information is, is less useful for the particular issues that you're trying to resolve.
0: So what are the structures and processes which you're using to build a more integrated systems approach?
1: Development in Myanmar has, and international development more specifically, has a tendency to try to create new systems of working. Um, This usually involves setting up new committee structures, setting up new uh, project committees and working groups. The urban safety project was built around an idea that this needs to be sustainable and needs to be owned by the local authorities. So rather than trying to create new committees, we approached the project by working through existing structures and trying to find the most effective ways to be able to build off of what was already there. So the institution that we work with is a working committee called the Township Management Committee, which has security and non-security actors that formally come together. Currently, or at the beginning of the project, had a tendency to report up and decisions were still made by the most senior person in the room but the the project itself has really worked to find ways to bring in other members of these working groups to be able to share information and then collaboratively among government officials solve these problems. Um, In addition to that, by bringing in the digital tools and the mapping technology uh, and having a space that can visualize effectively the voice or the data of all of the different people sitting at the table, uh, we're also incorporating community data into the same kind of tools. So once again, as as I had said, one institution has a piece of the puzzle, a different institution has another piece. We're visually representing how all of this comes together and then bringing in that essential but often missing piece of the conversation which is the community's voice, but framed in a way which is pragmatically useful to the current situation. So if I am a local authority that needs to understand a road, I have my department, in this case, say the the municipality. I also have to collect information from the health department who understands what happens post-crash. I also need to incorporate the police into this process, but that's not all because there is a history of this data not always being as accurate, and there is a history of this data being collected in a way which is is siloed and centralized, the community has a lot to offer. The community understands how the road is being used better than anyone. They are the experts. So by considering the community as a technical expert in how a particular space is used, collecting that information through the Women for the World mapping process and then visualizing all of that information together in one place, we're working with a range of local administrators to be able to identify the areas of most significant concern. And then this is quite important because these resources that they have are very limited. So it's not about addressing all of the problems. It's about finding where these problems are the most persistent, and being able to effectively use the limited resources, financial and personnel, to solve the problems that are going to impact the the widest and and most uh, significant population. And if you are able to bring these different authorities together, you might not have the same people at every meeting, but everybody has something to contribute in the urban sphere.
0: So Lumin, why is what you're doing disruptive to this system?
3: So um, Myanmar is going an incredible but messy digital transformation. And this project is a system disruptor because it's helping to lay the foundations for leapfrogging advances in data-driven e-government. So we're moving fast but very deliberately trying not to break things. Um, So what we're trying to disrupt is a top-down, supply-driven approach to data that David has mentioned before. A traditional approach to e-government, well, at least in the Myanmar landscape, is um, very top-down. A ministry in the central government would commission, for example, a health management information system uh all the decisions get made at the top. And what local offices do is that, you know, now they have to attend trainings on how to use the tool and then they have to use the tool and then they have to collect they have to input and collect data um because of this whole program. Our approach is trying to flip that. We are using the human center design methodology in order to achieve this through a co development process. So we're building a demand-driven tool. And by demand-driven, I mean, township officials actually find this, should find this tool useful and applicable to solving the day-to-day problems in their township. So like David mentioned before, we were working with the township management committees. So we met with them every month to try to understand the analysis needs of the specific township. And you know, the different townships have entirely different problems and priorities and issues that they want to solve. Um, So it's really sitting down with them and understanding their needs, but also reporting on the progress of developing these technologies. It's putting prototypes in their hands to watch our prototypes succeed or fail, and really getting their feedback. So this process is really about sharing the responsibility and trying to convey that this is not just the development of a digital tool but this is the development of new ways to do e-government, new ways to use data.
0: And could you talk about some of the specifics of the innovative tool that you've been using with the Urban Decision Makers which is the Township Geographic Information System Tool?
3: So the Township Geographic Information System tool, or TGIS for short, um, is a web-based mapping tool that very simply lets you see your data on a map. So that's the first thing is does, see your data on a map. And the second thing is to overlay that data with data from other departments and data from the community. So Data about community perception and safety that Women for the World collects through their urban safety audits, looking at data in a different way. So, if you're looking at road safety, you're not just looking at the roads. You're looking at the traffic lights. You're looking at the street lamps. You're looking at, you know, which sections of the road do people feel unsafe in. Um, you're looking at um, a history of traffic accidents. So the problem is not just confined to one data set the problem is illuminated by looking at it from a number of different perspectives and drawing these linkages and synergies from looking at this problem in a more three-dimensional way Uh, that's what TZIS does so you can see your own data That in itself is a value add uh, but you can also see your data, overlaid with data from other people, and you can share your data. So this another uh, way that this tool disrupts the usual way of working, is that the flow of data is not just top-down. Township offices are not just collecting data and feeding it up to higher level offices. Uh, they're actually using the data that they collect, but they're also sharing the data with other departments at the township level, uh, to
0: and is the tool accessible for people who aren't used to
3: working with digital tools? Usually the officials at the Township, they don't have enough time or interest for internship learning on how to use new complex software. The Township GIS tool is not the kind of full-blown uh, mapping application that you might have heard of like uh, QGIS or RGS. Um, the functionality is a lot simpler we also designed for a visual language that spoke clearly to our users and it's also Myanmar language first you can use the tool in English but our all the copy like all the text on the buttons, the descriptions they're all uh, Burmese first um, and we've deliberately written the copy to match the sort of everyday language that government officials choose in their work.
0: You're listening to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation podcast. This episode is part of our 2020 Innovation Report on civil society innovation and urban inclusion. I want to come back now to the community element and how this fits with what you've described. Shoko, how do you engage the communities in your part of the project?
2: First, we needed to get some uh, the permission and approval from the local authorities. And then they, sometimes they recommend uh, which what they should do or uh, also coordinate with the world leader and then get like a venue to conduct a survey and workshop and then also mobilize the people. And then for several days, uh, we conduct workshop. workshop. Uh, it starts with, uh, normally start with uh, the concept input, uh, like what is urban safety versus a group discussion, like uh, without categorizing. Just to get the general idea, and then mixing with some games so that like they can have fun because most of them are like not get used to that kind of lesson or like five days or ten days of workshop. So after getting some general ideas, we do the uh, like mapping. Uh, we sometimes use uh, digital maps, but uh, sometimes they, the committee just draw by themselves or based on the uh, the map created by the ward or administrator before. So usually those things, depending on the uh, format, uh, that is a little bit different from the reality, but uh, whatever familiar with the community, uh, that could be useful. And then they map with uh, some areas and then they go to the field or pass like the order is different. And then when you walk, it's kind of a transect walk. You know, already aware of the concept of urban safety and you already kind of like have some general Types of urban safety so they are aware more about that even they know as David said they, they are like an expert of their neighborhood but uh, for when you check in, in, intentionally they can mark so in the, before that kind of field work or transect work we kind of like uh, allocate the roles the each member of the like for example note taker or photographer And then sometimes like after that group discussion and then go to the field again after the GPS training so that they can mark each of the unsafe spot with some categorization. Which later we can digitize, support digitizing, uh, which can be like composed into that township GIS tool as uh, some data from the community. So that is a digital aspect. At the same time, uh, that kind of like point data or number or spatial data is not enough. We also need to get some more qualitative data. Why that place is unsafe or what is the relation or what is the reason behind. So that kind of things uh, we get from the group discussion or uh, sometimes the committee do a presentation after coming back from the field work. We use uh, like tools like post it or group discussion sometimes a uh, uh, group discussion by the agenda or age. They also conduct the uh, questionnaire based survey, to mostly around the 300 to 400 uh, people in each word. Based on the preliminary discussion or some uh, shared urban safety concerns, we can create some like, basic questionaries with uh, 30 to 40 questions. And uh, so that uh, the community participant can uh, conduct those interviews to the uh, residents in that world. Those are also the uh, very important uh, qualitative data, like not only from the limited number of participants to the workshop, but also more number. And then uh, what is uh, their what kind of concern they have or they feel unsafe or what kind of disaster they experience. After those kind of data collection, we frequently mix with some reflection workshop or conversation. uh, For most of them, that kind of workshop or that collective session, it's quite new. Although they have been working on the collective things, but not particularly for the urban safety then uh, that sometimes makes the space to share the issue or space for them to say the issue comfortably. For example, the women's issue, uh, like as I said, some of them feel, that that is normal. I I can just see it as a normal condition. But actually, uh, if other people are also feeling that, it might be easier to say. And then those uh, women's issues are not only shared by the women, but also by the men male participants as well. Yeah, so those are the basic tools. And uh, in most cases, uh, before closing the workshop, we uh, also conduct action planning discussion. So from those uh, uh, findings of the unsafe issue, what is their priority? What kind of action they should do? And then uh, what kind of authorities or stakeholders they can work with?
0: And what are some of the new kinds of conversation which you see happening at a community level through this engagement?
2: One of the strong changes is rather than urban safety issues itself, or perhaps it's connected to the urban safety issue, but it's more like social cohesion among the community. For for example, in one world uh, in Line tierre Township had uh, quite a lot of informal settlers and uh, formal settlers, formal residents. And before the workshop, uh, they used to say, oh, those people, or like there is a boundary between them. But after working together, discussing together, they started calling it as a one word, like uh, rather than like saying informal or formal, and then they started to understand each other or at least like feel more comfortable of talking or sharing each other. So that thing is one achievement or change. Then another different type of social cohesion is uh, that is also like township. What for? Is a, that area was a comparatively upper, middle or middle class area. There's a big gated community, like with housing estate. And those people are like, even they face a problem, like a small problem, like a, a smells or street talk or stolen something. They didn't really like share that problem because they have the private side company and the management committee behind that housing complex. So that also created a very weak collectiveness in that area. Plus, in that uh, world, there is also some informal community or lower community, and which have like a very total boundary, like uh, in addition to that gated community, but also cross things. Uh, those uh, people from that lower part is uh, like they are working as a uh, like maid or cleaner. And then totally have the different type of lifestyles, but after they working together, they felt like okay, these uh, programs are connected. And then just uh, before going to the program or each thematic program itself, they realize oh, just talking with each other is kind of reduce your insecure feeling. But this was not only me, and then uh, I got to know like what is why it is happening. It was not only like my fault or those things. So I think it's all quite big change. And then plus later after the audit, the committee were given the opportunity to present their findings in front of the Township Authority or police officers that also create some confidence or, or credit them for that horizontal connection which were not there before. And David, what kind of new solutions does this more integrated data
0: picture enable for the municipal stakeholders as well?
1: By taking the data that the community has put together, that they own, and by putting it in this format, it's the same information, but by putting it in this kind of accessible and practical map, the government not only accepted it, they want more of it. We've never really been invited to bring the community's voice in into these kind of conversations with this level of enthusiasm from local administration. In the same housing complex in Linedia that Shoko had explained, the local administration who had previously understood the informal settlers as a, a burden and as a group that needs to be controlled with his responsible zone, being the legally tax-paying residents within that community, has now shifted to understand that this group on the periphery is also part of his responsible area. And that by providing services, not just to the land-holding residents within the gated community, but by also including the informal settlers on the outside, Everyone is positively impacted. So the mapping exercise itself revealed that flooding came from areas around drainage that informal settlers had had been putting their their rubbish. When you are visualizing that information, the first reaction without the map would be, "Okay, well they're the problem. They need to be addressed. They need to be removed." When you start looking at what infrastructure is available to them, then you start seeing where rubbish bins are and where they're not. The example and what we've, we've noticed over the course of this project is that the local administration recognized that we need to provide services to everybody because the impact on the entire community is coming from the lack of services provided to some. And they started providing rubbish bins, they started collecting those bins on a regular basis. And that was a way for them to start seeing that they're necessarily only providing services to one group over another, but by providing services to everybody, the entire community benefits. I I think that the main inclusive outcomes that we've had are, at this point, a reframing. So by being able to demonstrate that the answers and the data are not necessarily required to come from the local authorities or from the state institutions, but also the community has a lot to add. And in addition to that, they also have a part to play in the consultation process because just as the municipality are the technical experts in road design, the community are the technical experts in road usage. And by creating that kind of recognition and creating a space to be able to have those conversations, but also recognize that there's more to learn, then the inclusive conversation can at least begin.
0: In terms of innovation and disruption, what have you had to learn to do differently through this project? And you can include COVID-19 adaptations in that as well.
1: Our project. Does not follow traditional development protocol or operations. It is a a governance project that was disruptive by design. And it was a project that built in this strategy testing methodology into its initial design from the from day one. And strategy testing and the need to bring together diverse members of the project to be able to understand where we currently are and take stock of what information we have and then pivot as necessary uh, was a cornerstone of the work that we did and is something that is not necessarily disruptive, but is disrupting to a traditional work plan and a traditional log frame. And by us having this built out in the beginning and then working with partners who are also able to remain flexible uh, and change as the needs of the community or the political context changes, it was incredibly helpful at bringing the project to the position that it currently is. The biggest takeaway for us during COVID was to be able to understand COVID as a very similar part of the same process that we have been working on for a long time. It is understanding the, the needs of the community and working together to be able to collaboratively solve problems. So instead of us talking about road safety over the past six months, we've been talking about some of the challenges around regular administrative functions of local authorities during a time where you have even fewer resources and you have even fewer financial resources and fewer staff resources that are able to contribute to the, the regular operations of your organization.
0: What does scalability look like with this approach? And what do you think are some of the key success factors to being able to achieve this?
1: The scalability is something that we've had a lot of back and forth about within our own office and understanding what those kind of positive outcomes would look like and what they wouldn't and i think that one of the the ways that we started to understand the project is beyond the the growth of the individual tools that were created through the project and more of a focus on the process and by going through this process with local authorities it is a challenge to be able to bring that to scale, but it is one of those necessary challenges which needs to be undertaken by any other institution trying to go through it. By understanding that building something together and getting into the the messy parts where you have to fail, you have to learn from those mistakes, and then only through that failure you're going to be able to come to something that is useful, but also owned by you, is a process which does not easily translate to a, there's 330 townships in Myanmar, it doesn't easily roll out all of them all at once. It's been a, a challenge for us to think about how we can kind of institutionalize this. One of the ways that we've been doing it has been through horizontal learning, and that removes us as Asia Foundation, removes Women for the World, removes DB as outside organizations, and then provides a space for local authorities themselves, even the ones that we don't work with, to be able to talk about their successes and become champions for their own process. And it's, it's, it's much more effective for a, a township administrator in Lindaya, the township that everyone knows is a problem, uh, an area that is uh, beyond control, as they might believe, if they can solve these problems themselves and they can get through these challenges, then all of the other townships can as well. And that conversation and that space to be able to bring local authorities together and learn from each other has been our starting point at scalability. Through this iterative learning by doing process, the local authorities that we worked with, and then the people that they were able to describe the process to, have been able to demonstrate, most importantly, that their job got easier by working with each other and their job got easier by consulting the community. And that upfront work actually saved them time and saved them resources. And to be able to make that claim is I believe much more important than the success or failure of an individual piece of technology.
0: I think it's really clear from what you all describe about how the process itself is very much building new cultures and models of collaboration and cohesion at community level, between communities and authorities, and between authorities themselves. Now a question to all of you. What have been the biggest enablers for innovation in the project? And what are your biggest takeaways for other organizations working in urban contexts? David, starting with you, please.
1: The main takeaways for us are, first of all, you have to remain flexible. And this is not necessarily related to COVID at all. I think that throughout even the course of this podcast, we've been talking about it like we had this big master plan. This was the beginning and this is the end. That's not really the case. We had to learn throughout the entire three year period and we're still learning. The initial conversations we had with DB when we started this project, the initial conversations we had with Women for the World when we started this project and the conversations that we've had with the government have all created a new kind of understanding that we've had to adapt to. And through that, we have a uh, process that we call strategy testing. And we go through on a monthly or quarterly basis with the team, bringing together the knowledge of everybody that has been, even within our own little implementing silos, which can happen even if you're working to try to prevent it in the government. It can happen within your own institution and take stock of what we have and then pivot as necessary. And for us to be able to do that, it was incredibly helpful to have a donor and the support of the UK government who was willing to let us work through these processes. I don't think we would have been able to be as successful as we can say we have been if we had started by doing the project that we had planned in 2015. That is for me is, is the most important part and it really, really couldn't have happened if all of the pieces didn't come together. If we didn't have the processes that allowed us to learn if we didn't have the people that were willing to share and if we didn't have the management that was open to flexibility so that would be my first one the the other learnings are to make sure that these projects are locally owned the systems that exist outside of Myanmar i can say confidently are technically the most robust systems that you could possibly see for kind of digital mapping tools like they are far beyond what we created. But that wasn't the point. The point wasn't to have the best piece of technology. The point was to have a piece of technology that was actually functional and useful in the context. And by building something locally, and by creating that local ownership, now we know that when we are gone, they are actually going to be able to use it. My dad told me that he's a photographer and explained to me that the best camera you have is the camera that you have with you, not the camera that has all of the fancy features. And I feel like that kind of stuck with us in this process, the, the tools that are going to be useful are going to be the tools that are actually used. And that was an essential component in the, in the entire design process that DB has undertaken.
0: And I think this is a really key point to highlight. The tool was co-developed over an eight-month period, with EB holding monthly meetings with government stakeholders to ensure ownership and uptake. Lumin, what are your main takeaways,
3: please? For me, the biggest takeaway is the fact that we have started a conversation. And I have gotten the privilege to watch that conversation grow and watch our relationship grow with our stakeholders. And you know, on the DB side, it's, we're talking about government officials at the township level. So Tj's originally, uh, to them, was a shiny mapping tool that is somehow going to improve the ways in which they work. They actually called us, uh, referred to us as the mapping people. So, uh, so it's watching that relationship grow, like we've gone from the mapping people to like the people that they call up when they have a data problem. These like small sort of data management things that we help out with on a regular basis uh, that people in government have reached out to us to help with. You know, over the past one and a half years, I think it's been, no, it's been a year. <laughs> over the past year, like watching that relationship grow and uh, become more organic is for me, like the most rewarding uh, experience so far.
0: And the same question to you, Shoko.
2: One thing for Women for the World, we have been working with the community, but this project were kind of the catalyst to make it more stronger or formalized. So like because of this system, plus the value of the creating the data culture and then also the inclusive process culture in a more institutional way, with uh, the tool which can possibly scale up. It can also create some foundation to look at the community's voice and the system to include that voice to the uh, conversation. So that is a very uh, powerful thing. Uh, Although we have been working on similar thing without this technology or bigger, larger engagement by the, the Asia Foundation, and then also technical innovation plus the Awareness for the humans uh, center design by the TV. It wouldn't have been that easier. Another thing is uh, in relation to uh, what David had said. The ownership is a uh, very important part and it's still kind of challenging uh, or something we want to explore, especially from the community's face. At the moment, as I had uh, described before, still we are helping them to digitize the data or we are helping them or supporting them to develop the questionnaires. And uh, we try to make their ownership as much as we can, like uh, by consulting or making that paper-based map as well. But at the same time in the future or currently there are so many mapping software or application which is easier to use uh, by the smartphone or something uh, low-cost devices. And uh, we are exploring what is the achievable way to strengthen their uh, ownership? So, where or what next
0: for the project? And how can we keep in touch with your work?
1: This past year has also really been focused on creating those systems to institutionalize and, and localize some of these processes. So, Women for the World over the past year have been working on this mapping, but has really tried to also create a working tool, a working document that is something that other CSOs and other institutions can pick up. And we've been really advocating for that. So how can this process and this methodology be adapted locally by other groups that want to work on the kind of mapping process that has been demonstrated so effectively over the past two years? While with the TGIST, we're trying to find a way for that to also be quite integrated into the regular day-to-day operations of local authorities. And we're rolling out and kind of trialing how this can work without our direct supervision. And most importantly, throughout this rollout process of, of both of these tools, we are are going through the problem solving methodology, which ideally is something that is going to maintain beyond our work. So our project formally ends in April and our COVID pivot has been continuing this process, but with COVID as the main area of concern. And we will continue to try to integrate the, the more second order impacts of COVID that the local authorities still need to be preparing for around the kind of digital tools and community engagement methodology that we have been working on up until this point.
0: Right. And in terms of keeping, just keeping in touch, social media, Hmm. website.
1: The Asia Foundation Myanmar has a Facebook page um, that we could put in the show notes. Uh, If you want to follow what we are doing, we also have a Asia Foundation institutional Facebook page and a website, which we can also link to.
0: And we'll include Women for the World and Phoebe as well in in the show notes. So thank you guys so much for all your time that you spent talking to me uh, about your work. And I really look forward to seeing where you go over the next few months with it.
1: Thank you for having us on your show.
2: Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. It a very interesting insightful conversation Good to reflect about the project. You can find links to more information and
0: resources on both this innovation case study and the Centre's 2020 Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion Report in the podcast description. Many thanks to our producer, Julia Pazos, for all your hard work in making this podcast series happen. This podcast is kindly supported by the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung and its Strong Cities 2030 initiative, promoting global collaboration and knowledge sharing for sustainable urban development.